Hey everybody, it is episode 34 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris joining you with Steve as always. Hey Steve. Hello, hello podcast world. <laughs> we are happy to be coming at you with a special guest today from the Austin running scene, president of the Austin Runners Club, Mr. Iram Leon. How are you, sir? I'm good. Good to be with you guys. Is it okay if I call you Jay for the purposes of this? Pretty much what anyone who can't pronounce my name calls me. Okay. <laughs> that is now me included. So we're going to call him... Jay, how's it going, sir? Good to have you. We're going to be interviewing Jay to talk about his story from fighting brain cancer to leading up the Austin running scene. And so we've got lots to cover with him. And we'll be talking about everything from being a dad to facing your own mortality and, you know, light topics like that. Yeah. <laughs> keeping it, keeping Ke- it simple. Keeping it simple <laughs> and real. But first, before we jump in with Jay, we're going to be doing what we do as always with these episodes which we'll is start with some intro topics the first we wanted to get some feedback from a listener chris who shared with us after listening to the facing your fears podcast which was episode 32 he sent an email and wanted to contribute to the discussion and i think had a valid point as we were talking about fear of failure and fear of letting people down he made the following point via email and i'll just read from his words he says, well, I, I agree with that sentiment that more often than not, if we give it a go, we succeed far more often than we thought we would, but we do fail quite a bit, or at least not 100% meet the intended target. And all too often these days, defined and well-broadcasted social, social media objectives. You guys touched on it, but the fear is really with the ego. However, I think even more inspiration can be gained by athletes defining and broadcasting slash owning their objectives not meeting them and then demonstrating to the world that it di- that all didn't come to an end as a result. Character defined in adversity is important too. So he goes on to say a few other things, but essentially along those lines, see, which is that if you go for it and you fail, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, I think Chris brings up a good point. I thought we kind of covered that in our fear of failure, but we probably were sm- spending most of our time discussing what, fear is and so didn't talk about the getting back up right right and that's what chris is saying is like you it's and he was just asking for more nuance and a little more of the backstory around the entire thing which everything he said is absolutely true and um so when i read it i thought well we've touched upon those issues and those those situations in other ways but we hadn't we didn't in that that episode but i do think chris's point is more of a more of the point of how fear gets overcome in most of those scenarios by recognizing that it's part of a process it gets its power gets sort of minimized and and you begin to begin to see it as a fear that's not founded in what really happens right. on the day-to-day basis so he's saying go through fear but more importantly realize that it's going that the that the real success comes from the picking up and picking up getting pick picking yourself up picking yourself up picking yourself up yeah right? he, he quotes a japanese proverb at the end of his email fall eight times get up nine as well as he pulls in a quote from evil knievel failure is not falling down it's staying down and so i think it's valid that you really can't fail unless you just don't go for it and give it your best right well, I think you also could, f- I agree, but I think you also can fail 
by not recognizing that it's necessary part of the process. So, and if it's a necessary part in the process, why would you fear it? If it's like what's expected, of course, that's a intellectualizing of the entire experience of having this physical fear feeling. But if you can walk yourself down that road, you can get to the place where you recognize that that fear must be overcome and failing is only not facing that fear and getting up and getting up and getting up. So it's, you know, I don't know. I think um, in a lot of ways, I feel like we Chris hit the nail on the head, but it's sort of a little bit of a side topic from where we were at. Here's what I here's what I struggle with on this, though, is that. The second that it's it's a hard it's hard to find yourself simultaneously in a place of realizing that if you don't hit your objective, that it's going to be okay because everyone's still going to love you. And they might be inspired by the fact that you picked yourself back up. But at the same time, have that drive and desire to get that objective at all cost without letting that devil kind of creep to your shoulder and say, it's going to be okay if you miss it and allowing you to let up maybe that just a little bit. So to me, that's the tricky part is simultaneously believing that it's going to be okay if you failed the objective because you can pick yourself up and because everybody's kind of will still find inspiration from you anyway but at the same time having that visceral connection to the outcome to the point where it's going to force you to give everything you have that to me is a tricky balance yeah and i don't think there's any pat answer that you or i or anyone else in the world could give about that i think that's something each athlete has to experience themselves and wrestle with that's my term of wrestling with the angel it's like figuring out that you're vulnerable, but continuing to put yourself in a place of vulnerability, it's exceedingly hard, especially in our culture that's not about um, showing weakness. Our entire social media platform for each individual person, as I see it, is primarily showing themselves as, look what I did today, so much better than what you did today, <laughs> um, and not like, this is what happened in my life, and this is how I overcame it. You know, So in a sense... Uh, our sport puts us in a much more difficult spot, one which Chris recognizes is the point, right? Yep. And and maybe our fear of failure discussion didn't hit on that topic, but I still think that that, that that is way more, what he's talking about is less about fear and more about the need to pick yourself back up, which is a, char- is a, is a character issue. <laughs> <laughs> we'll debate that on our next episode. <laughs> fear versus character flaw. <laughs> But thank you, Chris, for the contribution. If anybody else would like to contribute or provide feedback or comments on any of our episodes, please do email us. You can reach me at chris at roguerunning.com or steve at steve sisson at roguerunning.com. We welcome the feedback, and we might talk about it on the show. I have a feeling Jay may actually have something to say about that topic at some point, too, today. So I think we're going to get back around to it for sure. Let's not, let's not <laughs> jump right there. We won't there. ruin that. <laughs> But before we get to Jay, we're going to talk about some running current events. Well, one that's not so current anymore. A couple of weeks ago, Killian Jornat, who we've talked about on this show before, who had an amazing feat in Everest earlier this year, completing the fastest known time from base camp to the summit and back to advanced base camp, just recently won his fourth in a row Hard Rock 100, which is amazing on its own. But... To do it the way he did it this time is particularly impressive, which is that he fell at mile 13 or so during the race, dislocated his shoulder, 
and then completed the rest of the race with over 30,000 feet of elevation gain with his arm in a sling. Yeah, he reset it himself. Yeah. <laughs> Fell down, popped it back in, <laughs> kept going, and still won the thing in just over 25 hours. I mean, just an unbelievable display on a course, for those that don't know the Hard Rock 100, that is insane. You go over 13 mountain passes. You're most of the time between 12 and 13,000 feet, over 30,000 feet of climbing. There are portions in the race this year, if you saw pictures, where you had to climb up a rope up a snowy slope that was, you know, 25 or 30 degrees, and it was just insane. And how he did that with one arm, I have no idea, much less finish, you know, finish, much less win the whole thing. So Killian, once again, resetting the bar on running in general at this point. You know, four-time win at Hard Rock is pretty amazing in and of itself. And yes, to be... I also, I don't know if people actually recognize, if you've ever done a mountain run or mount working, getting up mountain passes, y it's a whole body experience. It's not a, oh, I can just isolate. You know, if people will think running that 400 miles is all legs and lungs. It's also your arms, very much so. And I have met very recently been going up and down 14,000 foot peaks and I can tell you, I use my arms a whole lot to not to think about not utilizing that shoulder or being having to immobilize that to the point where he he was basically, um, you know, he he, he was, I don't know, it, it, he was extremely handicapped. Let's just say that yeah. he, his his process was handicapped. Um, it was funny though; his competitors have so much respect for Killian that they knew that this had happened. It was happened early enough for everyone to know. And he was running alongside his competitors for a good bit of the race, and they all knew. Yeah. Well, he was. Yeah. It, it, they, I'm sure when he got to 80, they're like, "Well, if he didn't, <laughs> he didn't drop out now. He's not going to drop out right. anytime soon." <laughs> so they they knew, and he just put the jets on, escaped. Although those photos of him coming through the finish line, if if you got to see some of those photos, he was definitely hurting. It was the first time <laughs> I've ever seen. F you know, photographic or video representation of Killian in, in, in distress. He was definitely hurting. But most everybody does that race with hiking poles for a good chunk of it, using both arms. So, again, to do it with one arm up some of those slopes it is dangerous, you know, not to mention doing it as a part of a race. So it's absolutely insane. It is worth noting that Carl Metzler actually has won that race five times since it was since it began in 1992. So Killian still chasing Carl for the most hard rocks, but an unbelievable performance this time. He already owns the course record from a couple of years ago and just proved once again that he's definitely the greatest current trail runner and certainly maybe the greatest of all time trail runner. And as you talked about before, we got to potentially then have him in the conversation for greatest runner. At least he, he needs to be in the top 10, in my opinion, to, you know, from 800 to 100, you know, 800 meters, half a mile to 100 miles. Um, I think he's he's in the conversation. He's of, in the mix. Yeah. So congrats, Killian. Impressive result. Very inspiring. Now we've got to turn a little bit to the track. So we've gone from the trail to the track to talk about the Diamond League results from the recent Diamond League Monaco race this past weekend. We had a couple of American performances worth noting, especially as we head towards the World Championships in London in August. First of all, to set the stage, Steve, we got to talk about Diamond League races in Europe. You know, we have the one Diamond League here in in Eugene with the Prefontaine Classic, but you've got London, Monaco, housed in all these big track meets in Europe that are 
really the pinnacle of our sport in terms of being able to watch track and field. I mean, these are packed houses, festival-like atmospheres. The energy is insane. It's on my personal bucket list to get and see one of these in person because I think if any American get, could get placed in the middle of one of those meets watching it live, then they would instantly become a fan because of the energy that you would have at one of these meets. So this is the pinnacle. I mean, outside of the Olympics and the World Championships themselves, these meets are sort of the, the biggest meets in the, in the world and have the highest level competition in the world as well. So it's a big deal to perform well. We'll talk about two performances from Americans at Diamond League Monaco. The first, got to mention Aji Wilson. She broke the American record in the 800 meters, 155, and broke the 18-year-old 18 18-year-old 18 world record held by Gerald Miles Clark to become now the fastest American in the 800 of all time at the very young age still of 23 years old. So amazing result. She finished third in the in the meet so still didn't win but the time was unbelievable and shows that and she was right there i mean she could beat castor semenya and some of these other women that are kind of controversial in terms of their testosterone levels that we've been talking about before what were your impressions of aji's race number one i thought she withstood castor went out really fast you know she she ran that Semenya ran that 400 race a week before or two weeks before that was really pathetic. She started out in the back and stayed in the back. Yeah. Um, and so I think in some of that, Castro had a sense of trying to push the edge and push the barrier. She went out, they went out pretty quick. And I thought Aji just made the most incredible strategic decisions during that race to keep herself in a in the right spot to have a shot and was able to kind of pull in i mean she was they went three abreast they were very very close at the end um and i guarantee you ajay's training is still a month out from her optimal um and we also found out some really good news for our 800 meter crew all of our 800 meter runners who probably have some level of a shot at meddling um is that Castor is going to double at the World Championships this year. So she's going to run the 15 and the 8. She's run 401 for the 15, which is really screaming fast, but she hasn't done it in a long time. So it'll be very, she hasn't done it in a while. She hasn't done it on that scale. So could we be seeing a little um, hubris or a little bit over, over pushing of that? Which again, depending, I haven't looked at the schedule. I made this, sta- making this statement without having looked at the schedule. So I don't know. If the fifth, if if they're intermixed or if it's going to be um, undermixed, meaning for our listener that whether they're going to run an eight prelim, you know, an eight preliminary, then an eight, then a, then a fifteen preliminary, then an eight semifinal, and then you know how these races will line up. But it means that she's going to run in a minimum of four races and a potential of five races, depending on how that eight hundred lines up. So that's a lot of racing and a lot of shifting gears and a lot of having to get yourself in just the right spot. So I do think that. Without Castor Semenya running the race that she does, the girl that got second in this race, Nian Saba, is dependent. I think Nian Saba is completely dependent on Semenya to run the race that she can run to run away from everybody else. I don't think Nian Saba has the skill set. I don't think she has the racing chops. I don't think she has the intelligence to figure out how to get through these rounds in the right way. And if Castor has a bad day and doesn't go out fast and decides to roll back from the back... I do think it gives Aja even better chances. And if we watch the U.S. Championships this year, Miss Wilson has been practicing running from the front and practicing the multiple racing styles. So she's fit. 
She's fast. She's competing at the highest level. She believes that she's got a chance to win, which is something that hasn't happened in the past. Caster's running multiple races. Nian Saba probably shows, and Wanjuri has shown that she's not on the best of, of form. Yep. Lots of reasons to be bullish on the chance of the U.S. winning a, winning a, a world gold in the 800. So, yes, watch out for Aji Wilson. She's also fearless at the moment, which is important. And since angry. we just talked about fear. So, congrats, Aji, on the world, uh, sorry, American record, and we'll see what she does in Worlds in London very soon. We also have to talk about Evan Jager. He became the first non-African runner to win a Diamond League steeplechase for the men, running an 801 and just absolutely obliterating the field. He ran 203 over his last 800 over barriers and water jumps and literally just gapped the guys behind him like they were standing still. It was an unbelievable performance. It sets him up with Capruto potentially injured as the favorite going into London. So we could see a gold there for the U.S. men with Evan Jager potentially winning the steeplechase if everything comes together. But his result was impressive. And when he finished in 801, which is just shy of his American record of eight flat, he looked smooth. It looked like he hadn't been pushed, and he certainly didn't have anybody to lead him out in terms of time. So there had to be more on the table there if he was well, pressed. If you watch the race, especially over the last 100, you can see that he got to some point after he came over that last water jump when he realized how close he was to sub-8, and he dug in there. And so if you watch that last 50 meters going into the last hurdle and then the, and the 50 meters after that, it kind of looks like he's struggling. But what happened was he looked up and saw the time was there, and he was trying to really scoot in to yep. get at 8 or under 8 and didn't realize. I don't think he realized when he went at 500 to go, which that move that he makes, people will say that it, it all happened from 300 to the finish, but it actually wound up after the water jumped 500 meters to go, he started really doing the work, and the other guys tried to chase him, and they couldn't. And they started racing for second, and then he just and it and then it looked like he exploded away from them. They just couldn't. They just couldn't run with him. He's 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 at his best form, um, and as I mentioned on social media earlier this week, he was he was 90 days ago. He got his butt kicked in a 1500 to the point where he basically went back to his coach and was like. I'm in trouble. Like, I don't know what I can do. And his coach, Jerry, I'm sure said, grasshopper, take a deep breath, relax. Yeah. We will get you where you need to be when you need to be there. And, um, you know, if you watch the U.S. champs, he also looked really vulnerable at the U.S. champs. But his last 500 at the U.S. champs was just scintillating, yeah. incredibly well run last 500 meters. So uh, it's great to see Evan come, at, you know, who has proven his worth up to this point to be at this finest form, peaking at just the right time, and I'm super excited to see what happens. It's going to be awesome to see. Now, Cabruto, who's Olympic gold medalist who beat Evan in Rio, has rumored to be injured, although the cynic in me says he could be avoiding the drug testing associated with Diamond League meets. So we'll have to see how he comes you know, on form as well, we enter the Well, on the, the video footage, I don't think it, was, think it was Cram, Steve Cram. It was a... It was a uh, it was the UK's um, BBC's coverage of the race, or they were at least the commentators. And he said that he had talked to the agent of Capruto, and Capruto was really f pissed off that he didn't run, that he wasn't running. So I, I doubt that that's all a sham, but it could be. I mean, there's we'll a little, the, the Kenyans are known for the gamesmanship, that's for sure. So <laughs> we will see. It's also worth mentioning that Kibane, who's was the third American at the trials, ran, ran amazing. An 808 to get a massive PR for him, which says that 
given the right race, we could potentially have two medalists in London for the men's steeple, which would be There's unreal. There's a little, little teeny tiny Kenyan dude who's really pissed off from the Olympics who might have something to say about that. So We'll see if he'll be on form. We haven't seen anything from Kim Boy yet. No, we haven't, but he is the. Ma- we never, ever see anything from Kim Boy until the actual big-time meet. So yep. be wary of a guy who likes to go out into lane eight point back at his competitors and dance across the finish line. He's, he's a the, trash talker. He is the most entertaining, uh, other than Bolt, he's the most enter- entertaining track athlete on the track at any point in time. He's amazing. So we'll see. Watch out for the men's steeple, Evan Jager. And speaking of trash talking, I think it's time to introduce our guest again, <laughs> Leon, who is a king of trash talking. Uh Goes by J, or at least that's what his friends call him. What does the J come from? Is that your middle initial? Yeah, it's my middle initial. Someone okay. in college said, if I'm going to mispronounce your name, I'm going to mispronounce it right, and they just call me by my middle initial. <laughs> <laughs> so it's stuck. Yeah. Does it bother you when people call you J? No, not at all. I just uh, It's better than <laughs> when they mispronounce my name. So It's I, better than... It's better than Iram. Iram, <laughs> Irma, or Iram, or the Iraq, and the different <laughs> iterations I've heard of my name is crazy. Iram. Do I have that right? Iram. Iram. Jay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Just Jay. I'm not quite getting Get the out. R right. I'm not quite getting the R right. It's a trilled R. It doesn't even exist in English. So. <laughs> so welcome to our show. Good to have you again. As I mentioned at the top, Jay is the Austin Runners Club president currently and also has a really fascinating story, including things like winning a marathon, pushing your daughter in a stroller. He is a brain cancer survivor of sorts, given that. He's alive still, but has still has brain cancer, and we'll get to that story in a second. But going back, Jay, I want to get to your running history as we as we begin here. Tell us how you got into the sport. You know, anytime somebody asks me when I go, I got running. I started the same time. Somebody luckily asked me once. There was like an eleven month old running across the room. I'm like, right then, <laughs> just like everybody else. <laughs> everybody you, starts running around that time. <laughs> so you know, the question isn't now. When you decide to make it into a sport, I was. In third grade, running through the hall, and they kept giving me warnings. One day, they finally sent me to the principal's office, and this is West Texas in the 80s, and they sent me. I got spanked for running in the hall in third grade. And after school, they, they sent me out to the track team to see where running was really supposed to happen. <laughs> and then I beat everybody on the track team. <laughs> and I was a small town out of West Texas, 8,000 people. The coach was like, would you like to be on the track team? I think he was just expected to have to make a kid hustle that day. And so, you know, I ran the 400 and then eventually the mile in high school and cross country in college. Why did you do it, though? Was it just because they were trying to get you punished or did you actually fall in love with it at some level on your own? Well, so, you know, the way the the coach made it that day, that very first day, it was like, go see who can last the longest. And, you know, I think he was trying to show show me and just his team just have a workout. And I beat everybody like I was just the one. And so. I've got a little bit of a competitive streak. So I was like, oh, look, I can beat everybody. <laughs> and so that's always where it was. It was always the races. It was always the workouts where we were sitting there trying to outgun each other. That, that motivated me. I liked running, period. But as a sport, it was always about the competition. Beating people. Now, knowing your history a little bit, I have learned in talking with you through various runs that you put on some weight in college. Maybe got away from the sport for a bit. Talk about getting back to it after that. Well, yeah, the first two years in college, you know, I uh, we had a great school cafeteria. Not everybody does, but we did. I went to college in Napa Valley, and, uh, man, that was good stuff. And so some people put on the freshman 15. I did it with conviction. I put on 35 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized, you know, like, 
Somebody sends you one of those pictures. You're like, that's not. That's they just got a bad angle. They're like, no, that's what your chin looks like. <laughs> so I'm like, so I decided I would uh, kind of clean up my diet a little bit and start running every day. I, my original goal was just to run for three months. Just I'm like, I'm gonna run every day for three months. And uh, I lost actually all the weight. Got pretty much back to my high school weight. And then I uh, I went back to college and started running with the cross country team just to have somebody to run with. And then the coach is like, why don't you join the cross-country team? So kind of similar to elementary, and I would. And that first year, you know, I, I did all right. I, I was a little bit further back in the pack. But after I got back in shape, the next year I was actually the captain. I would win some of the meets. And so, uh, you know, the 8K and out on the trails, I'd do it in a little over 29. So fast forward a little bit to training for your first marathon. It didn't exactly go as planned. Tell us, Tell us that story, which kind of morphs us into where you are now right well my first marathon you know i didn't i hadn't found any running group i I, all i had done was pick up a book and just follow the training schedule and uh at that point i'd never even run anything longer than a 10k so for my long runs what i would do is i would find a friend who lived the distance that the book called for i would run to their house they would feed me breakfast and then drive me home (laughs) because the first time I did a long run, I was like, this is really long. So I was like, well, at least this way, once I'm past halfway, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and so so I did that. And my uh, my original goal for my first marathon was just to, to not walk. That was the, entirely the goal, was just to get through it without walking. But I was doing the distance challenge, and so I was kind of seeing some speeds. And just by the nature of it, actually, each race kept getting faster. My, my actual speed kept getting faster. Um, as the race is extended. As the race is extended. So mm-hmm. you run for the water, you know. I, I did Decker faster than I did run for the water. I did 3M faster than I had done Decker. And so I was like, oh, well, then I'm going to go the fastest on the marathon. Not my smartest strategy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was on pace, you know, for that strategy until about mile 21 and 22. Um, and I started slowing down. And I ended, I mean, it wasn't a horrible first marathon. I think it was like a 319. I think it was my first marathon. So it wasn't, it wasn't the worst. But... I was probably on a Boston qualifying pace for 21, 22, and then just kind of half walked. Did you in. meet your initial goal? No, I did not. And you you I, walked. I walked uh, probably. <laughs> I, I walked on and off. I didn't, you know. Um, and so I was like, man, I don't ever want to train like that again. This is absurd. That's a whole lot of time running. <laughs> and then a friend of mine was doing the Cowtown Marathon. So he was like, why don't you come up and do it with me? Isn't like, that like two weeks later? Yeah, it was thir- 13 days. I, <laughs> I want to get full credit. It was only 13 <laughs> days. Goodness. And, and so I went up there, and I did it actually like four, four or five minutes slower than the previous one because the system just still wasn't recovered. But I didn't walk, and so I was like, okay, <laughs> now, now I can retire. Goal accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> Fall down once, get up twice. Yeah. <laughs> so take us then through the run where kind of your life changed. Well, so, you know, a few months down the line, I uh, – Everybody kept bugging me. I actually did stop running anything long after the after Cowtown for probably six, seven months. But then the season started again in the fall, and everybody was talking about it. And um, and I, you know, I had been on pace to qualify for Boston on that first marathon for so long that people were like, "You really should try to qualify for Boston." Like, here you go. And so I went out there, and it's the gateway drug. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and this same, you know, I I had I'd found uh, the Austin Runners Club, and I, you know, I had met some, made some friends in the neighborhood who ran. So somehow it seemed like it wouldn't be that lonely of an experience. So I started training again, and it was the very first time I actually came in first in a workout uh, since college. And the very next day, I had a grand mal seizure. I was at a coworker's lunch party, and never having called in sick in my life, all of a sudden uh, I'm in the ER and 
We were doing a CAT scan and an MRI, and uh, this had all started lunch, but just the nature of it moved slow. And uh, I didn't actually get to see the neuro the neurospecialist till like 11 p.m. that night. That's how, you know, they admitted me the MRI. They're like, we think you've got something going on with your brain. We need to admit you. I actually tried to sneak off, but a friend in the parking lot saw me, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm leaving. And he's like, you, you can't <laughs> no, leave. No, you can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> so he walked me back in. And so the the neurosurgeon said that we think you have some kind of tumor we're going to need to do a biopsy on monday but uh because it's not considered an emergency procedure but we need you to stay here till then which i'm not a sitting around kind of guy so saturday a bunch of friends came over we played some board games we played some poker but by sunday i mean this is the longest i've been in bed and i don't know probably since i was an infant um so i don't i don't know why but i just needed to get out of there and so I asked for permission to go running, and that was a, a low week on the calendar. On the and so it called for like eight miles. It was just on that day. It was just what called for that day. So I asked if I could go running, uh, and what I was supposed to do was run around the hospital, <laughs> you know, because it was about a quarter of a mile or about half a mile around St. David's down there. Yeah, but a friend of mine who was an EMT was running with me. We were running with a the phone. There were nurses waiting in the front. We we're supposed to check in with them after a couple laps. I'm like, oh, it's gonna be a while. We're doing eight miles, and they went back in. And as soon as they did, I. I ran off of that because <laughs> I needed to get out of there, you know. And yeah. uh, so unless my insurance is listening in and then I was on the hospital <laughs> ground the entire time, <laughs> just for the record, that's obviously an exaggeration. And, we, you know, we came up the marathon route kind of backwards and I got my run in for that day. And I think that's probably the biggest reason why I slept all right the night before a brain biopsy. Wow. Amazing. So you found out in that moment that you had brain cancer. No, no. The uh, the. I, the biopsy was supposed to, the results were supposed to come in in two or three days, but it, it would actually end up taking like three weeks before I got the results. So wow. um, I just, I wasn't allowed to drive because this had all started with a grand mal seizure and friends kept uh, being kind of to like pick me up for workouts or come to my house and run with me just to kind of be supportive. It would be a couple of weeks before I, I was able to, to run. The very first time I ran, I couldn't even get down the block and my neighbor said I looked like I was walking with a dog, like a dog with his t- tail between its legs and but then I started r- running, and Decker would actually be the first half marathon that I would do after I found out I had brain cancer. And um, how long after? Yeah. So the seizure was November fifth of two thousand ten. I had just turned thirty, man. Life goes downhill fast <laughs> after you turn thirty. <laughs> <laughs> I know this well. And then, uh, so it was, it was a, li- a little bit over a month afterwards. And you know, they, Decker's just one of these races. They just give you the next bib number when you check in, and they gave me bib nine one one. Oh, man. I'm like, are you guys kidding me? I don't even have to put the emergency number on the back. You guys put it on the front. <laughs> and That's awesome. I would actually, it would be, I, I, I hit it, I think, like a 127 at the time, which at the time was uh, the very first time I would win my age group in a race. With brain cancer. Yeah. And then you ultimately had surgery, but you had to get your race in first, right? Well, so by the time I had to do all kinds of tests, MRIs, EKGs, EEGs, eight-hour neuropsychologicals, you know, um, this test where they put parts of my brain to sleep, you know. Um, they went in through my groin and all the way up to my brain uh, and put parts of it to sleep to see how risky the surgery was. And once all the tests were done, it actually wouldn't be till like, mid-January. Um, and they said, we need you to we'd like to get it done here in the next week or two. And it was Dr. Friedman from uh, Duke, the guy that did Ted Kennedy surgery. And I'm like, well, I've got uh, a marathon in five weeks. Can we do it after that? <laughs> and, I, you know, one of many reasons I love him, but he's like, well, that increases your risk of this and that, but you may not have another marathon if the surgery doesn't go right. So 
we'll do it a couple weeks after the surgery. Amazing. So that would be, uh, I would go out there. And, you know, you guys were talking about failure, and I went out there, and it was uh, the 2011 Austin Marathon, which was ridiculously hot. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was like 78 at the start or something. And so I went out there, and and I had one goal in mind. It was we're qualifying for Boston at this one. You know, like I, this is probably the last one. That That's the mentality I went into it. And I, I didn't blink for a good 21 miles. <laughs> 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 and then at mile 22, I started having these thoughts. I was like, yeah, you know, as long as I finish, it's okay. Like, people <laughs> will be proud of me. <laughs> and then you, you, the, you, you can't decide which one's the, the logical and which one's the dumb one when that debate is happening in your head. You know, when you're standing back from it, you see which one's the better idea. But at the time, <laughs> they both seem like really good or really bad ideas. But I, I, I turned on, and um, it would be the very first time I'd qualify for Boston at that marathon, so... So the time that you, from the time that you went in to have the biopsy, where you just thought you, there was a tumor, but didn't really have any exact idea what was going on with that, to the time that they told you that it was cancerous, what was your experience in that window of time in terms of not knowing what, were you cavalier and sort of like this is all going to work out and be fine, or were you along the lines of saying, ah, I think there's something pretty major here, you know, before you know, what was going on through your head at through the, that time frame? At the time, I was kind of just in a, I don't know, I, I was stupefied. I, I didn't have any great ideas. You know, I, I'd, I'd, I'd sit there and make jokes. Like, I'd just say, say the suspense is killing me, but if something's killing me, it's not the suspense. <laughs> uh, but I just kept running. That really was kind of, uh, it was the only thing that was still normal because my job had moved me to a different position because of the restrictions. I wasn't allowed to drive, you know. Uh, the bills were piling up, and somehow running was the only place where life still kind of felt literally normal, just mm. one step in front of the other. So it was it was actually probably the place where I thought the least about everything that was going on. Um, so I, I didn't have a, a, a great attitude. In fact, uh, one of my oldest friends who's a doctor says, everybody hears you making jokes, and they think that you have a positive attitude, but you don't. You have a casual attitude. Mm. It hasn't hit you yet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was after the diagnosis came, you know, three weeks into the process that I started, and... And then the run started to get a little more, um, I don't know that angry is the right word, but intensity. You know, mm-hmm. like th- there I was, I was no longer getting away from it. There's how I was sitting there trying to think about what was going on, what to do with it. And uh, I actually went on a, what I, I called the, uh, a tour of my life. And I went all over Texas, all over California, where I, where I went to college and I'd have meals with friends. And But every single one, I still followed the training schedule. Like that was the, <laughs> those were the, the two big things. Like, let me, let me make sure I take say hi to some people but i also want to make sure this marathon stays on pace how did you cope with it because we've also talked during our runs about your decision about the surgery because that was a big question do you have the surgery or not because there's risk associated with it that could potentially leave you in a place you know that wouldn't you know have a good life so talk about that decision and how it interacted with these feelings you started to have post-diagnosis well, I hadn't decided whether or not to have the surgery, and you know, because that water test, you know, where they put parts of your brain to sleep, and it's you're literally sitting there looking at words, and you can't read them. People talking to you makes no sense. It's like what being a dog or a small infant must be like, where it's just, you know, nonsensical. It's not like it's a foreign language; it's just noise. Uh, you get you get intonation, but you don't get any idea. Like, and so when the language part of my brain was turned off, like that's kind of a panic moment. And then when the memory center of your brain was, you know, they had these things where they showed you pictures and they read words to you. When the language center, I, I could recognize the pictures, but I, not, neither the written words nor the spoken words could I recall any of them. 
when they because I just didn't understand language when they did the memory stuff I, I don't remember what happened while they were testing it because my memory center was off so I was like I don't know what you guys are talking about like I, I so to realize that that could be permanent you're just uh, well you know all the words going through my mind are probably not appropriate for your podcast <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, we're explicit, we're explicit. <laughs> you can say whatever the hell you want the uh, but yeah so it's um and so you know, and one of the things I said at those meals with friends from all over life is, I don't know if the guy going in is the same one going out, but this one loves you guys. And while that that expresses affection, it also obviously expresses a lot of fear. And, mm-hmm. you know, most people just heard of the affection, but that's that's where I was at. And so, in my mind, running out with that marathon wasn't like, uh, wasn't trying to continue with, with style. It was trying to go out with conviction. And you qualified for Boston doing it. I qualified for Boston. That would be a the few first weeks time. before brain, <laughs> a few yes. before brain surgery. This, so how did the surgery go, and then how did your perspective on life progress from there? So the surgery went okay. There were some things that didn't go great. There, you know, I mean, th- nobody comes out perfect from brain surgery, you know. And so th- there are some uh, memory and language functions that aren't what they used to be. And I was valedictorian in my high school class. You know, I was uh, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. So all of a sudden to feel your brain not working as well messes with your self-esteem when that was what a lot of your self-esteem was based on um but and and, um you know uh, my my daughter's mother left at that time and so she just decided that i wasn't a fun enough guy to hang out with after brain surgery i didn't i didn't handle a whole lot of the emotional stuff very well and i think that 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 i some of that is my responsibility and so i was just down i was just down and it was actually the running community, I think, that in so many ways like, saved my life because some of those guys that used to give me rides to work out, they were sending me texts, and one of them literally showed up at my house like, we're going running, and we only did a couple miles a day and I, at, 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 at marathon pace. And I was like, this, <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> 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 I was like, how do people sustain this for 20 Because I hadn't run in a few months, you know? And... But they literally were coming out and, and uh, you know, s- they, w- they would show up and pick me up from the workouts and they would take me and some of them would run right alongside me because we were still trying to figure out some of the medical stuff. And um, and then uh, Summer Smith, who was the president of the Austin Runners Club, coincidentally on my first birthday after the brain surgery, sent an email just to the entire list that Austin's first ever brain cancer research race, the Brain Power 5K, was going to ha- be happening in September and I'm like, oh, I should sign up for that. <laughs> and I, d- I did. And I actually, uh, it was the first race I would win since college. It was a 5K. And I was the lead fundraiser. And so it was kind of that day where I'm like, it's not time to hang up the shoes just yet. Because I really was thinking, uh, whatever, I went out on a good note. But that's kind of what got me back into it. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing story about. So tell us, we were talking a little bit about getting back up. So you're pretty, you're pretty far down at this point in time. Um, and you run that 5K, that Brain Power 5K, which for a lot of reasons probably resonated, for obvious reasons, had a big resonance. But were you expecting to win it? Did you go in thinking, I'm going to win this race? Or did you just go in and say, let's just, I, I raised the most money that anybody else has raised, and that's a win. And I want to s- go out and have a fun run. Or did you say, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a point here. I want to, s- I want to run as fast as I can, or just, or did it just sort of come to you? No, I trained for it. I mean, I, I certainly had no goal of winning. I, I, it was only the second 5K in my life. You know, we ran 8K in college, ran the mile in high school, so somehow I just hadn't done that many 5Ks. Um, but I definitely went out there to gun it. Um, and um, there was, uh, it kind of gives you some perspective because you know there was a guy out there and he's done a couple of the, the races here, the Austin Marathon, the Rogue Distance Festival, like who had lost the ability to walk and talk 
and he was out there doing the 5k mm-hmm. and he would uh, train for a marathon after that and it just kind of gives you some perspective that you're kind of whining a little bit about the fact that a few things went wrong in your life you know and so meeting other survivors going out there and winning that race it, it, it kind of provided perspective and all the thing that all that I had lost wasn't as much as I wanted to whine about and that there were people who had lost more and were pushing harder to get back to basics, much less, you know, a win. So that, that race then inspired you to continue to keep running and keep training at it at, at the best level that you could. Tell us a little bit about the f- sort of that transition and getting back into a place where athletics and sports running in particular became it was able to be renewed in your life when maybe it wouldn't have been able to have that opportunity. Well, it was, it was actually just, I mean, it, it, this was before, um, it was so hard to get in, but shortly after that was when I finally, I'm like, you know what? I am actually going to do Boston. And mm-hmm. I hadn't even decided that at that point, even though I'd qualified for it. So I, I, I signed up for Boston and started racing again, started training again. And, um, I wanted to go out there and, you know, I was like, well, I didn't just qualify to qualify. I, w- I want to go out <laughs> there and run it. So it, w- it was that kind of thing. And it was just it, w- it would just be signing up for more and more races. And I'd get back out there to Decker again. And it was it was just kind of realizing that maybe wh- where I thought it was going to be ending, it was just getting started. Before we go further into your running story post-surgery, because I think that's powerful, update people on your status. So you have a stable tumor, but it's not gone. So the cancer is still there at r- some level. What's the general prognosis for somebody in your situation? So they couldn't get it all out because if they did, I would have no memory or language function that's attached to that. And so um, the median survival for people without surgery is four years. For people with surgery is seven years. But the 10-year survival rate is 12%. And, you know, one of the things that my surgeon said before the surgery said, you know, as things are, odds are you won't make 40. You know, Um, you're not going to beat this for just trying to buy you time. Um, And... That's a pretty sobering perspective. So, uh, you know, at, at, at age 30, I think a whole lot of us at any age, really, we're kind of in denial of our mortality. We're in childhood, you're not even aware of it yet. And then when we become aware of it, a lot of, uh, a lot of us humans are in denial of it, maybe even till after death. We're sitting there trying to go like, oh, that's never going to happen to me somehow, even though it happens to everybody. And so, but it would be two years. It would be over two years before I'd have a full month without a medical appointment. So when they're sitting there giving you drugs and taking your blood and te- testing this and testing that, you become painfully aware of your mortality, you know. And um, so that just kind of was a reminder. And um, running was very therapeutic for me. You know, there were there was uh, it, as soon as I got into that, like life got easier again. As soon as I got back into it, you know, both dealing with it. And so it was a coping mechanism all, all around. And I mean, it's therapeutic. And I, I, once I got back into long distance running about seven, six, six months after brain surgery, it was like. How much I ran and how long I ran told you how bad I needed therapy if it was my therapy. So, what, How did you face mortality? What were your reactions and emotions associated with that? You know, I I wanted to go out on a high note, um, That you know, and that was the marathon for me. And then once I realized I was still alive and most of the same, I was trying to make sense of it all. And so I wanted to just uh, continue to balance things. And, you know, uh, my wife leaving me at the time uh, – that was those were a big it became a big focus point that you know relationships are things you have to work on as opposed to just assuming they're going to be there so it started to become a more conscious effort because i'd become a single dad and so that was part of the reason that i kind of stopped running was i didn't quite know how to balance being there because i you know she was just like three years old at the time had just turned four so i wasn't going to be sitting there just leaving her at home and so there was just all kinds of things to try to figure out and 
Uh, brain cancer is not cheap, probably worst financial decision of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so there was just a whole lot of other things. But so sitting there trying to pay for races, there was also just kind of the budget question. But after the Brain Power 5K, I actually made a decision, which was that I would race once a month, that that somehow was just going to be part of the budget. And it, it, even if it was just some small 5K or 10K that was cheap or whatever, just that that was somewhere in the importance of food and shampoo <laughs> it just was it was and and i've i've literally you know since then not not missed a month are you running from your diagnosis i don't know if i'm ever running to or from something but i'm trying <laughs> to get there and so <laughs> <laughs> i have a t-shirt that a friend gave me it's there's a runner and the grim reapers behind him and underneath it, the caption is make him work for it <laughs> I can live with that being the perspective. <laughs> I can't remember where we were at. We it might have been at you'd you've uh, we've seen you around Rogue a little bit more lately, which we're super happy to have you for the window of time that we have you um, running with us. And I think at some point in time somebody complained about something. I I remember you said to them something to the effect of, "Well, you could be looking death in the eye" or s- saying something quite something like that. And I remember at first going, "What the hell?" And then I was like, "Oh, it's Jay." If, if any human being has the right to actually <laughs> slam somebody about having a bad attitude, first world problems or things like that, it's like the way you said it was initially at first like, whoa, dude. And then it's like, oh, wait, he, he, he knows. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, there are lots of things. I, unfortunately, because I'm fairly active in the cancer community, I have been to way too many hospices and funerals and people in treatment. And, I, you know, that, that also keeps you aware of your mortality. Um, but. Uh, because I've unfortunately been at too many people's hospitals, which I, at the end ends up being their deathbed, I've yet to meet anyone who sits on their deathbed, I wish I'd sat around more. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that being active isn't anything that I'm ever going to regret or that anybody else is. So tell us about your running now, because as an outside observer, it seems like you race more than once a month, <laughs> right? Right. And anytime anybody asks you to go for a run, you're pretty much up for it, including me, whenever I want so you're kind of in the mode of doing a lot of things you know a lot of races a lot of runs a lot of events you you referee ultimate you play ultimate you you know you do a lot of different things so as a a perspective of a coach one might say hey you could actually run faster if you actually focused and trained a little bit but it seems like you don't want to do that and you're still getting a lot out of it so what's your approach with running now well, I, I've certainly obviously had an A race. Like when I put off brain surgery to run a marathon, I, that, there was, you know, the workouts were uh, sacrosanct. But, you know, after I started running again, um, it just kind of became, it's a phrase that somebody uh, coined for me, but I still use it. It just kind of became for the run of it, you know. And I, I, I mean, I broke five again. I, a little bit after I, when they started some track meets, I was like, all right, can I break five again? And then five minutes for the mile fi- for the mile, yeah, five yeah. minutes for the mile. Mm-hmm. And then there were standards for there's the lead standards for every distance, the 18 minute 5K, the mm-hmm. you know, that will get you into the, f- into the first thing. And so I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm going to hit all those. And I did. I, somehow I got lucky enough to break them all, you know, and so qualifying for Boston, breaking five, sub 18, et cetera, broke six, hit run for the water. unlike Chris. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, Here we go. And so and then. um but then once I did that, you know, I I think that running, you know, like that little kid that I saw running when somebody asked me, it's a primal aspect. I, you know, I think it belongs to all of us. And so there is a balance of do you want it to be something that you're always focused on the time? And I've certainly been there. But I also think that for all of us, there comes a time where your fastest race is behind you. 
but that doesn't mean your best one has to be. And so I don't know that my fastest one necessarily is behind me, but I think I'm always, when people ask me what the race I'm training for, it's always the next one. It's always the next one, you know, and sometimes that has been six weeks in a row. That was a, a really crazy uh, <laughs> <laughs> six weeks. But oddly enough, actually, every other one was a PR. Um, and so, yeah, if I had an A race, I have no doubt that I could improve that particular race. But, I mean, I've gotten to do, you know, I, trail races and I've gotten to do all kinds of new events that I'd never even heard of a few years ago. And when you're focusing with it for an A race, that's, that's important to you. That's fine. If I'm not going to make 40, I'd rather take in more of them. Yeah, I we've got a chance to watch you run a little bit. And I'm a coach, so I get to sit on the sidelines. And some of the athletes that you're that you've run with in the last month have been um, their their PRs um, and their goal times are vastly inferior to the times that you've run. But and in the workout, they're kind of beating your ass. They're like they're 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 beating up on you. Um, and then I know what you're, what you've done recently in races, cause it's available for people to go out and look, tell us a little bit about your attitude of training and then the difference between that attitude of being in a workout and the, and, and being on a starting line and what, what changes in you that allows you, because many runners are not like that. Their, their best runs are on in their workouts and race days. They're not able to to lift and get it done necessarily some do some don't but you definitely from what i've been able to see are run, are training at one level and racing at another how does that happen and, and wh how does your approach to both feed into having good races you know i uh i hardly even start my watch a whole lot of work guys i don't know if you've noticed that like oh yeah when we're out there the track i'm not sitting here looking at my splits you know i i've done that but and so where the watch you do like to kick in the last rep <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I like to kick in the last rep is because, like, when that day we were doing 200s or 400s, whatever it was, we, you know, you were sitting there, you had set some goal pace, which which was fine, but I'm like, I'm not going to be looking at my watch. Let me just see what I can hang with. And then on the very last one, you're like, it's a race. And that's the one that, <laughs> that I took people on. And then, you know, when we were doing repeats there, uh, there were some, you were like, oh, well, some people are doing the extra one. I was like, okay, that's all you had to say. So <laughs> I, I, I get the, the time barrier and I've certainly been there, but ultimately I want to beat you. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and all my PRs without exception are ones where the watch became irrelevant, where there was someone near enough in front of me or behind me or on both to where I'm chasing you. I'm trying to beat you. Um, has that, that always been yeah, in your I, life? Actually never once, you know, when we would do time trials and, um, the 400. I never once broke 60 during a time trial when coach would make us do it by ourselves. I, I broke it multiple times during track meets. Never once broke five because uh, I happened to be the only one in the small town who could do it uh, at, uh, when we were doing it. But I would do it in races because there were other guys that were doing mm -hmm. it. And so um, it is, you know, last time we were doing 20 miles, which was the first time I've done it since before Boston this year. <laughs> I, was, I told Chris uh, like, around, like, it was me and Chris and Mark, and I told them, I was like, hey, man, if you, uh, if you, you guys are going to kick it in. It's fine. I haven't done this so long. I need to take it easy. And then they both talk smack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's all it took. Yeah. That's, and, 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 all it took. that's all it took for me to, you know, to uh, pass them. And so, you know, when I did the beer mile, Colin, uh, I, Colin had never seen me drink because I don't drink that much anymore because of the medication I'm on. And um, Colin says right before the race starts, he was the one who picked me up. And, uh, he's like, I'm going to own you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's the only time I've ever broken six in a beer bottle. <laughs> 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 so I, at the end of the day, you know, um, it, you know, the old saying about in the morning, you know, either the lion or the gazelle, you got to you got to wake up running. You know, my mm -hmm. last name's Leon, so I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be chasing. <laughs> and so the uh, the fastest marathon I had was 
because there was this guy who had been chasing behind me the whole time. He kept kicking my, the back of my shoes. I'm like, what? Like, there's why don't you run beside me? Or at least you know he was running that close. There's a little picture of it. you can see him stepping, and you know about mile 24, I thought I was fading, but uh, he passed. I'm like, no, you you literally kicked me during this race. There's no <laughs> way you get to beat me, and so that was my fastest marathon. And so competitive streak, right? Do not mess with Jay. So. Let's shift gears and talk about being a dad. Tiana is now, what, nine years old, ten she's years old? She's ten. Ten. I like to think she's still two or three. <laughs> but. <it> <laughs> and you kind of became famous of sorts on the national media scene by winning a marathon, pushing her in a stroller. Talk about that experience with her as you incorporated her into your running. Well, so I had started to run with her just first when I wasn't allowed to drive. Like, you know, she when she was young, she just hates, and to this day, she hates going to bed. And so she used to fall asleep when I was, I'd go drive around with her, but then I wasn't allowed to drive. So I tried to do it with a stroller, but that didn't work. She came back <laughs> wired, you know, and I'm like, I don't, this is not the same as a car to her. And so I just started running with her just cause we were having fun with it. And that was the only way I could do some of the training. Um, but then actually, um, a few weeks before the Boston marathon that I was supposed to do, um, in the middle of a 10 mile run, I, uh, I had a grand mal seizure in the middle of a, a run and about four and a half miles into it and after that i just i was just it was just kind of a freak accident you know and the doctors changed my medication and they said you're back you're fine with going back to running and kiana started asking if we could run together again and i honestly was just too nervous and i'm like no we're not going to do that anymore and she just kept asking just kept asking and she asked grandma and as she um and was like, you know what? I'll do my first half marathon if you do it running with a stroller. And, uh, and I'm like, what? I don't think you're allowed to do races with a stroller. <laughs> 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 uh, so we went, I went out to Odessa, uh, where she lives in West Texas, and we, get, we got permission. They said I had to start in the back. It was the first time I'd ever did it, and I had no intention other than to run it, you know, um, just have a casual run around the neighborhood like I did with her. And, and around, I don't know, mile 10 and a half at a water stop, somebody goes, you know, you're in fifth, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh. <laughs> so Here we go. I started gutting it. And there been a guy who'd been running next to me the whole time, just kind of, I think he just wanted some company. And uh, so I start pushing it, pushing it. And that guy realized he wasn't going to hang up once I, I actually started pushing it. And so I started gunning it and I would end up uh, passing everybody except for the guy in first. And I would come in second by five seconds. But I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> After starting in the back. Yeah, I started in the back. And so. And pushing a stroller. And pushing a stroller, yeah. <laughs> and so I left. Uh, I, and that, so that's what got me got back into running with her and got me to race. And actually, you know, my mom was still out on the course. And it was uh, the weather was getting worse. And I left Kiana with Grandpa um, and went back out to the same water stop where they had kind of pointed me in the right thing. And um, they said, oh, everybody got picked up. The weather's too rough. And I'm like, are you kidding me? My mom quit. And <laughs> just as I said that, she was actually coming around the corner, and I would do the <laughs> last few miles with her. And she was actually the very last finisher that, that day. And so that's kind of where, you know, my mom and I both took that. It was time to keep running with the stroller, and so we would keep going. And she was getting a little bit bigger at the time. Yeah, at the time she was six, so I figured that the stroller days were <laughs> didn't have too much time left. <laughs> <laughs> so we were hoping as you were pushing her. Yeah. She's a tiny thing, though, right? Well, not anymore, but yeah. Yes, no, she was. She was a small kid. <laughs> yeah. And so I kept asking different races, you know, from local races. And some of them let me in, you know, um, and some of them wouldn't. And But I kept doing longer ones, you know. I did the run for the water, the 10-miler mm -hmm. out there. And I, I did it in, like, 63 with the stroller. And 
you know, and so I won the turkey trot, the stroller division, four <laughs> years in a row. Just <laughs> <seven> <laughs> <and> a <half. laughs> but I couldn't seem to find a, a marathon that would let me in, and finally I, one let me out there in uh, East Texas, out in Beaumont, Texas, the Gusher Marathon. And I would go out there, and it's a double loop, so there were a lot, plenty of people ahead of me. And then when I get to the second loop, I'm all by myself. <laughs> and I, I go to the guy, the lady in the bike, I'm like, how far back am I? <laughs> you know, just because it got so lowly all of a sudden. She's like, there's no one in front of you. <laughs> and it's like about 14. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> Here we go. So I'm like, because pressure's on at that point. Oh, know? yeah, for sure. And I asked, you know, how far back is the guy behind me? And um, one of the bike guys kind of faded back. And he's like, oh, he's only about a minute behind you. And the uh, I was like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so... So we would we would end up running it, you know, and I would actually end up uh, the Boston qualifying times would, had changed between those, but I would end up coming in like 307.35, um, and it was one second slower than the one I'd put off brain surgery for, hmm. almost exactly two years to date after brain surgery. And wow. so, yeah. Pushing a stroller. Pushing a stroller. How yeah. much did you end up winning by? I ended up winning by uh, about five minutes. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if he faded or, you know. <laughs> 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 but, uh, uh, but yeah, but I gotta tell you that to this day I'm grateful. But that's the slowest winning time I've ever had of that race. Somehow just the 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 uh, everything lined up. But I'm thankful for it. <laughs> so let's talk about Kiana running. So you've now gotten her into the sport. Like I can't tell if it's you know you pushing her or her willingly jumping in. But what's what's your approach with her as she's gotten into running herself? Well, it's actually her. Uh, I mean, originally obviously I encouraged her to do it. Uh, but we would go out to the track. Um, and I would tell her to run, you know, ha- just however she felt comfortable while I was doing actual workouts. But we would go opposite ways. And every time we crossed, we'd high five. Um, and then, you know, that way I would get a real workout in. She she wouldn't have fun. Cause I, uh, she would have fun as opposed to just being stuck in a stroller and me getting an actual track workout in. But then I started putting in the kids' case. And then at the Rogue Distance Festival, it was the first time she placed. Uh, they ha- you guys had the, I forget whether it was a 400 or a kilometer out there, and she took third. It was a run around a parking lot. <laughs> yeah, the, right. the distance was right. indetermined. <laughs> X. <laughs> you guys gave her a gift card, and she was like, whoa, so you get stuff. When you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that competitive streak coming out in yeah, her. I don't know where she gets that from. But, you know, the probably the biggest uh, proof to me that she liked it was last year I was injured for minor injury. I tweaked the hamstring, so I was going to be out like three weeks. And I'm sitting there working on some stuff. And she's like, Dad, are we going running? I was like, sweetheart, I'm injured. She's like, I'm not injured. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the track and literally just timed her, her laps while I just hanging on the sideline. And I was like, all right, well, all right. This is proof she likes it on her own. So Yeah, I grew up, um, I started running when I was six and racing when I was eight. So, And my dad was definitely the impetus that got me started with it um as you reflect and think where running might go for her do you have hopes or are you more along the lines of we'll just see what plays out or i I do i do like that you know she has asked to for like a watch for those kind of things and that time will come but i just i you know i hope that she just learns to and she you know she just does like running and there'll be times where we run around the neighborhood and we do little fart licks and stuff and she's she's just out there and so She's definitely competitive. Um, she has. She started doing her first 5K a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was. I think she was eight when she did it, and that one was a little over 36. And you know she has now gotten it. Uh, I think under 23 or um, a little over 23. So she's taken more time off her uh, <laughs> 5K in the last couple of years than I have on my marathons. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she did the the uh, cap 10K this year in like 52, and so so she and she suddenly. 
So the way we work when we're in race, when we train, we run side by side. So a lot of my runs end up being slower these days because I'm just running with her. But on the race, I'm like, all right, I'm going to run at your PR pace. Um, and if there's any time you want me to stop, you let me know. Um, and there was one hot race where I, man, she was crying. I felt really bad. <laughs> I was like, we can slow down. She's like, no. <laughs> and there was uh, a, ki- uh, a woman who's like, it's not okay to cry. You know, and I'm like, no, it's totally okay to cry. It's not okay to quit. No, I'm 100% with you there. Having been in that those circumstances myself where it was unknown whether, well, many people frowned upon the fact that a kid that young was running and running pretty fast and it looked like a father was pushing them. And I, too, would get emotional sometimes about how much it hurts. And, you know, what a great education to a young person to realize that they're safe in the space of pushing the edge right. and, and, I, and I, those I, are gifts that 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 the, whatever conventional whatever the conventional person on the sidelines wants to think about it luckily you get to be a dad and and make those decisions i think <laughs> i think pain is part of life and whether you know where where there's some of the workouts that we've done where you walk out and there's times where it indicates an injury and of course you should listen to that but there's times that it inj- in, indicates that you've gotten stronger when you come out sore that's painful too and so pain isn't just something to be avoided it's something to figure out where it comes from and whether you need to focus that for greater strength or for rest and so never has it been my stance that my daughter should never cry it should be where what's causing those tears how do you focus them what do you learn from them and pain can be an indicator for that, and tears are a way to express that. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. As a dad, it's good to hear. Now, you're six and a half years post-surgery. You said earlier that seven years is sort of the median survival rate for someone who's had surgery. So you're approaching borrowed time. How do you, first of all, reflect back on the last six and a half years? What have you learned as a part of this journey so far? Well, honestly, I've been thinking it's a borrowed time for like six and a half years because, I mean, I've woken up in ambulances, you know, and the most convenient grand mal seizure I ever had was in bed. And, you know, th- <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there are times where you feel it come in I was, and I felt it come in bed. I was like, well, this is about as good as it gets. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, sometimes people uh, um, sit there and go, well, I'm going to be the one who beats it. You know, I'm a poker player. One of the things we did at the hospital is play poker and. I don't bet high on 12% odds, you know? And so I, I've sat there and just assumed that it was all borrowed time, you know? And, and when you're having seizures, if you have one in the wrong place, that's your last day, you know? That day that I had that one in the middle of the 10-mile run, I was literally on Enfield. So luckily I was near enough the side of the road where I ended up in the grass, but you're not in control of your body in the a grand mal seizure. You end up on the road and somebody doesn't see you in enough time or there's some bus, that's it. And so, I, you know, I try to live each day with conviction. Uh, I have to take maximum dosage medication every morning and every evening. So there's no way to not think about that daily for me. And so you, you put that in perspective. Um, the medical appointments have gotten further. It's been stable long enough to where now I only have, uh, you know, six medical appointments a year as opposed to. And they're really three. It's tests and, res- and results. But when it was constant, that also kind of reminded you all. So I just kind of sit there and go, you know, if I don't make it, um, what am I going to do? And so you keep betting on the hand that you have. You know, you, I don't get to change the hand. I don't get to change the odds that I have in the poker hand. So you bet on the hand you have, but you bet as intelligent as you can. There's no folding. And so I keep betting on it, um, assuming that I'm not going to win, but know that there's one more card coming and that it's not, it's not a set game. How are you different now than before the diagnosis? I think I just – I've made it a point to just do things with – people and with conviction and in that order 
if I have to pick between conviction by myself or people uh, with a little less conviction, like I'd rather run a little bit slower with Kiana, you know, or a little bit slower with Chris, you know. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Or, you know, um, and so I'm. This is the, just coincidentally because I've been training with Rogue. This, these are the five highest mileage weeks of my life. Mm-hmm. But none of them is because I've got some. I don't even have a marathon on the calendar right now. I mean, it wouldn't. T- Chris knows it wouldn't take <laughs> much to talk me into running one. But I, it's not. It's because Chris has been like, "Yeah, hey, let's go do this." Or you know, Elena said, "Let's go do this," and uh, and I'm like, "Yeah, I'll go run. I'll go run." And several of those have been two a days because I got two different invitations to run. So I'm like, "It's good company. It's a good activity, and why not?" So let's talk about the Austin running scene. You were the president of Austin Runners Club. You just started your third term, third annual term. First of all, you came into that position, I wouldn't say as an outsider, but somebody kind of new to the Austin leader, Austin running leadership group. What were your perspectives on the community at the time? And what have you been trying to accomplish through your terms as president of ARC? I think that my main perspective was that we didn't have enough overlap. Um, you know, there, there, there's this group here and this group there and that group there. And that there... There, are, that's okay. That you know that there's times you know I have my house and you have your house, but every once in a while the neighborhood should get together, mm-hmm. and you should know who lives down the street and in our case runs down the street. Because there were times where I literally I would be running and I'd crash into Rogue and I'd crash into Gilbert and I'd crash into Austin Fit and we had all picked incredibly similar routes, and a whole lot of people didn't even know e- each other. So I'm like, we we can we can do better than that. And so one of the good opportunities that we have in that, probably the best one that we have in that, we put on three events: Daisy. Uh, Dr. Anna, the distance challenge is a distance challenge because there there are people from all the groups that are similar speeds that are all going to be going through the same tent. So I just kind of started in, increasing what I thought is a chance for people to socially interact there. And so we did more activities there. Um, and so, we, you know, you, you did the distance challenge last year. You took, I think, third overall or second overall. Second overall. Yeah. Thank you. And the <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> and the, but, you know, y- there's people who you see in the tent that you don't necessarily train with. And so, and the parties that we had there was um, was at a brewery. It was a lot more social than just come get your finisher's jacket and take off. And so and the other thing, too, is that we're agnostic about where people train or where people shop. And so our newsletter, our website, we advertise every every free run that there is in town. We advertise every race that there is in town. We advertise every group that is in town. So we want people to go, hey, go meet your neighbors. Yeah, there's a pretty substantial change in the time frame that you've been president in terms of I've been a part of the Austin running club running scene since 1988 so it's a long time and I've seen a lot of a lot of you know it was so run text driven for so many years and then when run text sort of began to not be when when the training groups came out then it suddenly ARC sort of got fractured in ways that it took I think up until about two to three years ago as you've been trying to really push to be inclusive so I would tell you as an outsider who's not a member of the ARC, I'd say the ARC is doing amazing things. They're doing really, really good things. Um, and as you've heard me say before, I think every every runner in Austin should be a member of the Austin Runners Club. And when I do start running again, maybe I will become a <laughs> member of the Austin Runners Club. First things first, right, Steve? <laughs> so I did run two <laughs> days in a row, so maybe a streak has started. Here we go. I am a member of ARC. So just to resign. So definitely everybody go and sign up. It's only 30 bucks a year and you contribute to 
this community in so many different ways. And not just that. We're the only ones that get you discounts every race, including 3M and the Austin Marathon, which, you know, some groups like Rogue don't get you. Right. We <laughs> well, don't get and I we, also that's true. <laughs> we don't even get that. And I do think, too, Jay, the thing that you – the push that you've been trying to make, which is to create an inclusiveness in the Austin running scene, um, is something the Austin running scene desperately needs, and it seems primed in a position to take advantage of that. It's, it seems maybe much of that is the groundwork you've laid in terms of creating olive branches and trying to extend them across different groups and extend them through that. I think it's also, um, there's there, everyone, ha the dust has settled sort of in terms of, you know, there were the, the retail wars and then the training wars, both all going at the same time. And ARC has said, Hey, we're, we're not, there are, there's no need for any of that. We're, we're all just trying to do the same thing, which is, elevate running in our town and it feels now through through the ARC's efforts and also through the efforts of um, Town Lake Trail Foundation have been sort of in a lot of ways the two biggest groups to really say hey let's all throw our arms around this town and all the runners that run in this town so congratulations you've done a great job what remains to be done what do you still want to do as, as ARC president there are some things I'd love to see happen you know um, like the triathlon group I don't know if this is necessarily the concrete idea but they have an annual uh banquet every year after, at the end of their series where you know you don't have to have been part of the series to show up at their banquet and they kind of have some informal awards and these kind of things Man, i'd love to see some of that rogue does something like that you know the ship of fools does something that gilbert has his thing but there was just a meal uh just a big meal that it wasn't necessarily a fundraiser for anybody it was just like hey you know there's somebody who you might become friends with or hey that person's pretty good looking you might want to get their number even though they don't train in your group or you know there's someone who actually happens to like your religious political other social activities besides running that you <laughs> might want to hang out with at other times that you know that that there i think there's a whole lot more organic elements that you can talk to other people besides just about like hey what were your splits this weekend so what's as we close here what's coming up that you want people to be aware of as arc president what should they be signing up for well the distance challenge actually the the price mod for the all-in-one registration goes up in a couple of weeks and so um i think everybody should do the distance challenge at least once you get to see a you know pretty much all the big races in town and as part of a series. And it's kind of cool to have cumulative times because it's not just, oh, I had one good race and one bad race. It's, it, you have to have a continuousness of it. And so, you know, and there can be, there can be some big wild factors. We had, you know, the, Mark Pinalis, who was a great runner. He actually won the first four races, but unfortunately got injured in the fifth one and wasn't able to finish. So who we thought was going to be the obvious winner. And the previous year, same thing, you know, somebody who had been leading got injured, I think at 3M. And then we had the first, the very first time that the Masters winner was also the overall winner. And so, but the, it isn't just the overall winner. We've had people who are sitting there arguing about like, hey, I'm shooting for eighth in my age group. Yep. And so, <laughs> so you get to see not only where you stand overall, but where you stand in relation to your gender and your age group. And you get to see your own, when I, the last time I did it, you know what, the first time I did it, I mean, I saw that I was getting faster at each race. And so you get to see your own progress. So by any measurement, you get to communicate with people in the community. You get to see your own progress or regression every once in a while. And you get to see kind of where you're standing. And if you do it from year to year, you can kind of see where things are shaping up. And you get to race. As an older athlete, if somebody who's listening hasn't competed in this sport from high school where you have track meets and where you have cross-country meets, it's a way to compete in our sport with your cohorts, age group related, that you just don't have access to really as an adult. And... To do it over the series of races, I think for somebody of any pace or speed, it gives you the opportunity to kind of see who's next to you in in, the, in those lists and go after them, which is a ton of fun. I don't, you know, this town is a marathon-centric town in so many ways. I've lamented that for many, many, many years. But the, the distance challenge allows athletes 
or it actually requires them to run races of other distances, which actually really helps indicate where your current fitness is as you're prepping for the race. Right, so, and, we, and we also have a half track. So if you don't ever want to run a marathon, you know, because uh, the guy who ran the first one died. So if you never <laughs> want to do anything that unreasonable, you know, there's the half track where you have to finish with the Austin half marathon. And so you never have to do a marathon, you know. And so there, there are different approaches to it, too. Yeah. Well, I think we'll wrap it here, Jay. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to get your perspective on, on running, on life, on mortality. And it's been a real pleasure for us to get to know you and for me to run with you a lot over the last few months. Hopefully that doesn't change much. I will still continue to goad you into 50-mile weeks yeah, my, my <laughs> as girl, long my, as I can. My girlfriend's jealous of me. I don't know how your <laughs> wife's handling it. but <laughs> <laughs> I think we're good. Uh, so anyway, thank you for joining us. It's been a privilege. We really appreciate it. And we'll have to have you back on at some point. All right. So everybody should go sign up for ARC, Austin Runners Club, and go sign up for the Distance Challenge if you haven't, because those are two big important parts of the Austin running community that are tests for your medal. So go get it done. That wraps it, Steve. Any final thoughts? No, just wanted to thank Jay for being here and for also the gift that you are to the community and it, the idea that we may not have you for however long or how well, the amount of time that we actually do have you i for one will take advantage of all those moments which means you probably are going to get stuck running with me occasionally <laughs> which he's been goading me to do <laughs> nearly damn near every time i meet him but i also knew i wasn't in shape he, and he, i know how competitive he is and i know how competitive i am i just don't like to get my ass whipped that's a <laughs> recipe for for injury for steve <laughs> all right thanks everybody for listening as always you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on instagram twitter or facebook at rogue running this has been episode 34 of the running rogue podcast We'll talk to you soon.